when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, a fracas at the Nevada State Democratic Convention in Las Vegas has rent divisions between the Hillary and Bernie camps newly asunder. And it's leading the media to speculate about whether Sanders will ever be able to unify the party again. But what if the media narrative has this overrated? And what if they've got it backwards? It wouldn't be the first time. Meanwhile, Congress is taking their best shot at dealing with multiple crises at the moment. Up on Capitol Hill, legislators are proceeding in relatively swift and bipartisan fashion to address America's opiate addiction crisis, optimistic that they'll have a law signed soon. Joining us to talk about these goings-on is Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble. Shaping up more slowly is Congress's response to the Puerto Rico debt crisis. The island territory could miss a $2 billion payment in July, creating the dire need for a loan restructuring plan before the problem deepens. Our own Laura Barone Lopez has been covering the story from San Juan to Capitol Hill. She'll join us to talk about whether or not Congress will miss their shot. Finally, the 2008 financial collapse spurred a terrifying foreclosure crisis upon America, forcing countless people from their homes. But what many homeowners discovered when they tried to fight foreclosure is that the entire foreclosure industry was underpinned by rampant fraud and forged documents. Author David Dayan met many of the people who fought on the front lines of this battle and wrote a book about it called Chain of Title. He's here to talk about what many people missed about this aspect of the financial crisis. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Laura Barone Lopez, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good whatever you're doing at the moment. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly dose of Weltschmerz about American politics. Uh, my name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. I'm joined, as always, by cool people. We have Arthur Delaney. Hi. Hey, what's up? Just trying to figure out what word you just said. Oh, it's a German word. Sorry. It means like, just like something schnapps. about sadness. No. Your, your weekly dose of schnapps, yes. And also, uh, Zach Carter. Is Hi, here. guys. Schnapps. You yeah. know what I'm feeling on your behalf? Frem Shaman. Frem Shaman. Oh my God, that's a mean thing for you to say. Freud. It's a really mean thing for you to say. Um, these are my own words against me. Um, we have a really great show today. We're going to talk about multiple crises that are unfolding, but we wanted to start off talking about uh, the, the silliest one. The silliest one. The Democratic primary process uh, has apparently hit the skids in terms of everyone's ability to get along. It all stems from the weekend uh, spent in Las Vegas at the Democratic Convention. It was uh, a bit of a mess, people have reported. It's, it's, it's a big surprise to everyone because it's the first time ever that anything ever went sideways in Las Vegas. Normally that city is associated <laughs> with decorum and tranquility, but something badly went wrong this, this weekend. 
and it's 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 uh, the way it's being cast, and I'm not sure this media narrative is right. I don't think I'm, I'm not sure any of this media narrative is right. You're going to disagree with the prevailing mid- media narrative. It's my job. It's my job. <laughs> is that uh, it has uh, fractured the party beyond repair, fractured the Sanders Clinton relationship beyond repair, and we've started to hear more and more about how perhaps it is Bernie Sanders' responsibility now to make things right. So is any of that true? Well, start with the fracturing. Right. Is that for real? Sounds fake. No. <laughs> well, let's be clear about what we're talking about, what's being fake and what's real. What's what's real is there's definitely a tempest at the uh, convention out there where uh, Sanders uh, supporters in a primary. In a, in a, in a, sorry, it was a caucus, right? I can't keep track anymore. What's going on? They, they Nevada had a primary in uh, February that Clinton won, but it's a question of what the delegates are doing now and right. how they are elected and selected. And, yeah. There are arcane rules yeah. that, are, that are caucus like. What most people, what most people maybe don't appreciate because they maybe follow just the cable news media coverage of primaries is that there's a lot going on after the votes are counted. There's sometimes multiple series of conventions in which the delegates get chosen and elected. And there's a problem at this convention in Vegas uh, because a number of the people who were slated to stand for delegate election for the Sanders campaign uh, failed to do the stupid documentary things you have to do to be officially registered and eligible to vote. There were also a number of uh, Clinton delegates that faced the same thing. But the uh, Sanders delegates in particular complained about the Byzantine nature of the process uh, and the confusing amount of rules and the amount of time they had to spend trying to navigate the process. And they fell out of order. There was talk of there was talk of chairs being thrown. I don't know how overblown that was. Uh, what I do know is that after the fact, there were uh, Sanders supporters who sent really, really mean and hateful things to the people who uh, were running the process on behalf of the Democratic Party. Um, I, I have to correct what I said. It was a caucus. Okay, but so that was wasn't a, the problem. Was the ensuing? This is like part you of, described. Let's face it. This is part of the problem with the whole primary this system. Is, is we the, never know. Can never remember what's going on. The problem here is the fracas, not the caucus. Yeah, oh, oh, oh. See, Ooh, that's yeah. good. Although the caucuses are stupid. I'm going to steal that line for the actual <laughs> article. But um, but but what's fake about it? What I think what you're suggesting is fake. Is that like this is an unprecedented level of acrimony in a primary? Yes. Yeah, I, I think, uh, look, people should not be going around giving death threats and calling people bitches over the phone and stuff. That's fucking stupid um, and mean and pointless. Um, but that said, uh, primaries, uh, you know, from the thousand foot level, 10,000 feet level, they just tend to be pretty nasty affairs. And the party, the Democratic Party, tends to find a way to come together in November. Um, I don't think what we're seeing... I think what we saw in Nevada, what we're seeing between Clinton and Sanders right now is even really comparable to the level of acrimony we saw in 2008 between Clinton and and Barack Obama. I mean, uh, the Sanders campaign is not leaking photos of Hillary Clinton wearing a turban to the Drudge Report. Um, You know, that that happened (laughs) in 2008. It was really messed up. Free idea, Um, Sanders campaign. (laughs) Right. Go, guys. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I just I think that's. I, you know, I think I think we're not going to remember this in two weeks. I think a lot of Sanders supporters are really, really upset right now. But you know, once the convention is over, th- there just isn't going to be this 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 reigning uh, level of, of hostility. So, I think. so you don't think when it's convention time this summer that we will see the level of acrimony 
that was like historically notable in 1968 Dear around, God, no. around that time. <laughs> no, so look, there won't I, be a riot. I do think that there is a major shift happening demographically within the party. I mean, it's very clear that young people like Bernie Sanders, right? He's winning that overwhelmingly. And they're more concerned about economic issues than perhaps old line Clinton people are because they and they probably recognize that many of the things that have uh, befallen the economy are as a result of decisions made in previous Clinton, the previous Clinton administration. Right, right. These are, you know, we're talking about kids who grew up in the Great Recession. I mean, this is a big deal for them. Um, and, and it should be, I mean, it's a big deal for the whole country, but that's, that is the most pressing issue for a lot of these people is the fact that they've had a, they've had to live with a crappy economy for the last decade. And, I, you know, so I think the party will shift, you know, over time policy-wise. So I, I do think that, that the, the, the Clinton team will have to figure out a way to deal with that. Um, but I think they've they've kind of figured that out. And if you look at the way they're, they're responding to this, I think you guys are going to be shocked to hear this, but I think they've they've really handled this very well. They just let the whole thing blow over. They didn't make a big deal about it. Um, Brian Fallon was on one of Clinton's you know, top spokespeople was on MSNBC just saying, you know, we're just we just want to unify the party. We don't really have anything, anything nasty to say here. I think that's totally the smart way to do it. And I, I think the campaign is going to is not going to make itself uh, a divisive force by jumping into these things the way that, you know, the Democratic Party, the DNC, by continuing to go back and forth with Sanders on this, I think is just just dragging the thing out. Um, I want to focus on something you said that's interesting, uh, because you when, when you were talking just now, you uh, you sort of asserted that the responsibility for party unification is uh, is is on Clinton. And uh, right now, anytime you read about this story, you hear people hand wringing. How is Bernie Sanders going to put things right? How is Bernie Sanders going to uh, convince his supporters to support Clinton? There's this kind of weird thing happening right now as this conflict is kind of has kind of ensued, uh, where the media seems to want to put the burden of like fixing everything on Bernie Sanders and his people, and. I sort of think the opposite is true. I sort of think that when you get drilled down into the whole issue of who owes who what, I feel like it's Clinton who needs to demonstrate a certain amount of magnanimity to Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders supporters. And is that not happening? Because that's what Zach is saying. Uh, he, but- you're obviously indicating that's that, well, right now taking – Taking the trying to lower the temperature, yeah, uh, is a good first step. But when you get to that convention, people keep talking about, oh, is Bernie Sanders going to come out and like raise arms with with Hillary Clinton? My question is, what is Hillary Clinton going to do to make that an attractive option for him? Right, Sanders represents a real wing of the party that gave her a serious run for her money in in the primary. And if she wants to unite Democrats, she's got she's got to take those supporters seriously. Those supporters have to be willing to be taken seriously, but I think they will because Democrats tend to just tend to just vote for Democrats. That's that's what happens over and over again in elections. Meanwhile, there is like an existential threat to America in this election <laughs> in the form of a fascist demagogue. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that I think that if you're out there and you're one of those people who's an editor of a major newspaper, you've never listened to us because we've been dogging you out this whole time. But uh, I think that perhaps the media should rethink this whole notion of who owes who magnanimity and grace. I would argue that the victor 
of the primary is the person who is chiefly responsible for demonstrating those qualities. That, that is what magnanimity means. I mean, to be clear, but I mean, I also think I also think you're going to see Clinton do that. I mean, you, you've seen you've seen indications that that uh, you know Clinton is is maybe thinking about nominating somebody like. Uh, Elizabeth Warren to be her vice president. Right. Uh, you know, Brian Fallon was explicitly talking about giving Sanders people a lot of input into the into the the party platform at the convention. I mean, these are the types of gestures that you would expect somebody who wants the Democratic Party to be unified to make. Right. Um, it you, you would not expect them to be running towards like you know Romney donors and trying to scoop up all of these moderate Republicans, which they do also seem to be trying to do. Um, so maybe that is cause for concern. But I just don't see. I haven't seen any evidence right now that Hillary Clinton has bolted to the right since she has basically locked this thing up. To me, it actually looks like she's finally started moving left, uh, which she was not willing to do when the primary yeah, she was contested. Yeah, the, the idea that she will uh, like get Republican support seems unlikely as Republicans are, even though they're never Trumpers, are still around. They're they're going to gravitate toward him and he'll like be nice for a week and that will seal the deal absurdly. <laughs> The partisan loyalties will come out. I mean, no matter what happens, it's going to be a 45-55 election at the widest possible, you know, uh, margin. So I, I just don't see how how that becomes a, a good strategy for her. All right. Well, uh, we will hope that people take our advice and win with grace. Uh, we have a really great show, and I can't wait for the rest of you to hear it. So without further ado, let's get to all of that. We'll be right back. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined, as always, by Jason Lincolns. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this one. Yeah, this one's special. We've got uh, our friend David Dayen, uh, who is a journalist who writes for various publications, including The New Republic, Fiscal Times. Uh, but most importantly, he's got a new book out called Chain of Title about the foreclosure fraud epidemic that hit the country of mm, circa 2008. Uh, but as his book shows, it's actually been around longer. Um, Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So for people who are not familiar with the term foreclosure fraud, um, what, what is your book about? Yeah, it describes something very specific. Uh, it's about these three individuals in South Florida that uncovered this massive scandal, uh, and they were foreclosure victims who read their own documents and found them 
to be fake that found the fact that when these banks tried to foreclose on them, they were doing it with documents that were fabricated, that were, that were executed after the fact, that were forged, that were backdated. And uh, instead of just trying to fight their own case, they, they went, dug through the public records and, and recognized patterns and found each other at the comment sections of websites and started their own websites and sort of made a pact with each other to expose this fraud to the country. Uh, and they did. At the end of 2010, you may recall that all of these major foreclosure uh, uh, operations, the uh, mortgage servicing companies, all stopped their foreclosures because they were accused of robo-signing these documents and uh, uh, sending out affidavits without you know, attesting to the veracity of these foreclosure uh, 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 and mortgage operations without uh, actually having any proof of it. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of what we do. We follow their story. And it's really inspiring until the part where Washington and Wall Street just kind of make sure that there's no consequences for any of this. So in the 2016 campaign, Bernie Sanders took a little bit of stick for saying that the business of Wall Street is fraud. When I read your book, I really couldn't think of another purpose for mortgage securitization other than defrauding people. The whole system you describe seems to hinge on this sort of asymmetry between mortgage holders and lenders in which their documentation are very complicated and, 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 and inscrutable, where, as you say, they, there's another layer of fraudulent information, backdating, forgery, broken chain of titles. There, we've mentioned the title of your book, broken chain of title, working sort of in concert with state governments that basically want to serve the ends of their donors and contributors and judges who are either incompetent or set on these kind of rocket docket missions to clear their decks of these cases quickly as quickly as possible. It just seems to be a business intended to breed financial victims. Am I wrong? Does mortgage securitization have some kind of virtuous purpose? It, it was a fraudulent business model up and down the chain. You had fraudulent origination leading to fraudulent securitization, leading to fraudulent loan modifications, leading to, when uh, all those options were exhausted, fraudulent foreclosures. And the system was very symbiotic. You could not have done securitization at the level that we saw without the investment banks, the trustees, the mortgage companies, neglecting the well-settled 300-year-old property laws of this country. You just couldn't have done it. It would have been too costly and time-consuming to uh, uh, originate, generate, uh, record, and store a document transfer every time a mortgage changed hands. And so they had to sort of neglect the law. And when they came back and realized they had to uh, uh, show proof in court in order to foreclose on people, they just fudged the documents. So it's really a cover-up for this original crime of failing to follow the very explicitly required steps of uh, document transfer and transfer of ownership uh, as you would 
uh, in any sort of property sale of any kind. So, Dave, I have a, a question for you sort of about the reception to your book, because, I mean, you've been covering this before you wrote the book. You were covering this as a journalist. Um, and I remember going and talking to, you know, experts and, and bipartisan experts, not just, you know, conservatives or Republicans, and saying, look, I, it, it looks to me like maybe the entire, you know, property rights system undergirding you know, the mortgage system is is bunk, is is busted. And they would look at you like you were just a crazy person. Like that could never possibly happen. But as your book shows, it's actually true. So how how have people um, how, how has the response been to, to the book so far? So far, the reception has been universally uh, good, I would say. But I have been in those situations that you describe. When you start to talk about the fact that millions and millions of loans have no true and legal owner, and that the liens on those those loans cannot be enforced in a court of law, people do look at you like you are, uh, you know, like like you're you're in a mouse costume or something. <laughs> they, they look at you like you're you're an insane person, uh, and and that was true of the subjects of my book as well, who were just ordinary people who were looking at their own mortgage documents and saying something is desperately wrong here. Uh, one of them, Lynn Simoniak, uh, did some research on the witness uh, to one of her documents and found that that witness was in state prison in Oklahoma at the time he was supposed to have signed the document. Uh, you know, this, this <laughs> and so from that, she, they, she just spun this out and dug through the public records and realized that there was this mass forgery scheme. What's funny is that guy was in prison for identity theft. And uh, his identity too much. is also being stolen in himself. And you were like, oh, this is going to be gold for my book. <laughs> like, that worked. Uh, so, you know, you do get these puzzled looks, but I think that's one of the reasons why there weren't a lot of consequences. Nobody wanted to reckon with it. You know, you, you, you mentioned ordinary people there. Uh, for all I know, maybe we have some listeners out there who are facing foreclosure or might face it in the future. Uh, you might be in a unique position to sort of explicate what because because you got to know so many people who were fighting this battle. What happens to the life of a person when they decide I'm going all in to fight the banks for what's right? Yeah, it's uh, an, uh, a really challenging situation. I mean, obviously, if these people had uh, enough resources to tackle. Uh, the most powerful institutions in America, they probably wouldn't be in foreclosure in the first place. Uh, so it's very draining, both emotionally and financially. Uh, the subjects of my book, uh, their marriages broke up, two of them. Uh, two of them ended up losing their jobs because they were so obsessed with uh, trying to get to the truth and, 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 and continue to investigate this situation. Uh, it became all-consuming for them for a number of years. Uh, it, it can be, you know, it takes an emotional toll. You, uh, Huffington Post has written about the, the incidences of suicides and depression and yeah. health problems that, that accompany foreclosures. Uh, it is a very difficult thing, and I, I always tell people that, you know, I, I'm, first of all, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not dispensing legal advice. Uh, and I am, in, implore them to get legal representation, although some people end up doing it themselves and some do a fine job. But uh, it is a difficult road because you, you, you don't have judges who are willing to defend 
the integrity of their courtrooms and the integrity of the evidence that's used in, in court cases. I mean, you just hear stories from people where they're they're in your book. I mean, the judge looks at some homeowner and thinks, oh, look at that deadbeat. And then they look at the nice guy in the suit from Wells Fargo and they say, well, how could that guy be lying to me? Even though these <laughs> the documentation is, is pretty crystal clear. Um, well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. The book is called Chain of Title. People should definitely check it out. It is available now. It's super infuriating, this book. But definitely worth a read. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> should read this book. I apologize to everyone in advance. No, it's it's a good kind of infuriating. So on the plus side, the banks got bailed out. Um, the, the downside is... Uh, Someone should write the bright side. So. <laughs> Some rich people are still rich. That's it. Uh, thanks a lot, and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. We're back. We're back with uh, Zach Carter. Hey. And we are joined by our good friend and associate and confidant, Laura Barone-Lopez. Hi. Hi. So, right about 2006, uh, the economy of Puerto Rico began to contract. One of the chief reasons was that tax incentives that had been lavished on the island territory uh, to lure businesses to Puerto Rico expired and were not renewed. Uh, the government of Puerto Rico, finding it di- more and more difficult to pay their bills, started issuing bonds for which many, many investors were interested in mm-hmm. investing in. But eventually the uh, rising amount of debt and the inability to to cover basic gov- government services with the money they had collected uh, reached this tipping point, this kind of upside down point. And now... Puerto Rico is in a heap of trouble. Uh, they recently missed a payment of their debt. Uh, on May 1st. On May 1st, mm-hmm. I think, I believe it was $399 million. Yeah, it was actually a little over $400 million. $400 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the, 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 uh, the government there has, has, has sort of passed a law empowering their, themselves to skip out on these debt payments. But they have a $2 billion debt payment coming due July 1st. Yes, and two billion. Mm-hmm. The hedge fund vultures who currently hold these this debt and these investments are circling, and Congress is now engaged in a process of trying to figure out what to do to help Puerto <laughs> Rico, who <laughs> will remind everyone is a place that is America. Yes, where it's Americans home to three point five million uh, Americans. So, Laura, you've been up on the Hill mm-hmm. recently as they've been dealing with this. What's the tenor? Well, up well there? like everything else, they're, they're taking a long time, um, which isn't the best thing given that it's a shortened calendar year because of case. In, I don't know if anyone heard the 2016 election. Um, <laughs> so that thing. that thing that's, you know, looming in the background. Um, so they need to move uh Pretty quickly before the July 1st payment, which, as you said, is $2 billion because the Puerto Rican government is saying, look, we can't pay it. There's no way we're going to be able to pay this. And, and that's that been is, clear for a long time. It's been clear for a long time, but now they're actually finally defaulting on these payments. Like, they weren't defaulting um, last year when they were trying to make these payments because they kept pulling from different pots. They started pulling from the pensions and uh, retirees' pensions. And so... But now they're just full on defaulting. So Congress is uh, considering a bill that would establish an oversight board to help work with the local government uh, to restructure this 
70 billion that is left of uh, Puerto Rico's debt. And that, and the thing sorry. is, when we say restructure, essentially what has happened here is that Puerto Rico just has way too much debt. Mm-hmm. And people who bought that debt received a very high interest rate on that debt because it was considered risky. And now it looks like they're not going to be able to pay. And what these hedge funds are doing mm-hmm. is pressuring the government and both in Puerto Rico, both the, the sort of domestic territorial government in Puerto Rico and Congress here in the United States to make sure that Puerto Rico keeps paying this debt to these, to these mm-hmm. investors. The risk they take on when they take on risky debt is that it won't get paid. And the hedge funds are trying to make sure that ap- after making sure that public services get, get ransacked, that pens- pensions get ransacked, you know, that the economy gets ransacked, the unemployment rate in Puerto Rico is over 12% right now. It's more than double what it is nationwide. Yeah. Um, that, they, that they get paid, not the people of Puerto Rico. Um, so like a lot of things, this is, a, this is a battle over who gets to take a haircut. The people who had nothing mm-hmm. to do with the decisions made in Puerto Rico that led to this crisis... Uh, or or the people who and, made the stupid risky bets mm-hmm. in the first place. Another thing to keep in mind is that under Puerto Rico's constitution, um, the hierarchy of the debt, where it comes to who gets paid back, you know, general obligation debt, people who bought into that, which are the creditors, um, that ranks their debt higher than, uh, you know, normal residents of Puerto Rico. And right. so that's another problem. And that's why this restructuring... Um, and the oversight board, you know, um, some lawmakers and even the Treasury are trying to say, look, like, yes, we know that under the Constitution, not all debt is equal. But by giving power to this oversight board, they can maybe try to create a better balance between who gets paid back first, who gets paid back what amount, you know, because there has to be an, a better balance. And there's no there's no possible way that there will ever be a solution in Puerto Rico unless the overall amount of debt is is written down, mm-hmm. unless unless people simply don't get paid in full. That is, when we talk about restructuring debt, what we mean is making sure investors take a haircut and don't get paid in full. And that's how that's what happens in any bankruptcy proceeding. States are allowed to do that in the United States. If, you know, Kansas just can't pay its bills, it, it can it can force investors to take haircuts through a ba- through a bankruptcy process. Puerto Rico currently can't do that no. um, because it's a it's a territory mm-hmm. and uh, colonialism exists. It's technically a commonwealth, but treated like a territory. So that's the yeah, that's the problem. And they can't they don't even have the power to restructure, which is also why, um, you know, this bill would give them that power to do that. Now, you've recently been to Puerto Rico yes. as well. So take us through what, uh, how this crisis manifests itself in the day-to-day lives of ordinary people there. So I recently traveled with Secretary Treasury, uh, Treasury Secretary Jack Lew to Puerto Rico, and he wanted to just really focus on the human element. So we went to an elementary school in San Juan, and... They're having trouble just with general upkeep. They haven't had any work done on the buildings. And you go here and it kind of felt like something out of a third world country because um, there's no air conditioning in the classrooms. Uh, They do have some TVs and laptops, but they can't even run them because if you if they try to run them, um, the power will go out because circuit breakers are faulty. And uh, so the only relief from the 80 degree weather outside were fans and not all of them worked. And then there's termite infested walls. So none of this can be treated because it's a public school. They aren't getting money to do any upkeep. You know, then we moved on to um, Centro Medico, which is the largest complex uh, and the main medical center for Puerto Rico in the Caribbean region. And there they've already, you know, downsized. It's also the largest 
or the third largest trauma one center out of the U.S. and its territories. And um, they, you know, having trouble with keeping inventories uh, when it comes to, you know, dialysis for babies and um, different cancer treatments for kids. And so they can't keep up with the day-to-day workings that because they aren't getting payments from the government uh, anymore. And um, they have to pay in cash uh, to suppliers, and they can't keep up with that since they don't have the funds. And so this is all trickling down to, you know, um, people who are still living there. And then there's also a personnel problem because so many have migrated uh, to the mainland from Puerto Rico, um, the highest number in 50 years. So uh, that's causing, you know, the economy to just further shrink. And these hedge funds that that are demanding payment here, a lot of these people, these are not, for the most part, investors who, you know, just took the original bond issue. The the bond started plummeting in value once it became really clear that Puerto Rico wasn't going to be able to make good on them. And so then a bunch a bunch of vulture funds, as you said earlier, Jason, moved in to pick this stuff up for much, much less than fa- than face value. And they're now asking to be paid in full and trying to prevent Congress from actually doing something about this. Um, and there's kind of, there's a there's a, a nice story uh, from The New York Times last week about uh, about Pedro Pierluisi, who is the sort of fake congressman from <laughs> uh, from Puerto Rico. Right. Puerto Rico doesn't get a real seat in Congress. Yeah. Um, and his wife, uh, Maria Elena Carrion. And basically, since he since he went to his fake Congress post in D.C., she started a consulting firm and has been working with a whole bunch of hedge funds, some of whom happen to be lobbying on this issue. Oh, wow. How about that? A group is called Multicultural Capital, which I guess sounds better than um, We're corrupt coming colonial... to eat your carrion capital. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, it's... Tied up in this are also just basic questions about 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 democratic representation and sovereignty. I mean, it's just it's just outrageous that they that Puerto Rico doesn't have a real member of Congress to, mm-hmm. to press this case in in Congress, and that the guy they do have is you know has has family members who benefit from uh, from from the current situ- from the current crisis essentially. One last question: um, mm-hmm. what what are the contours of what uh, Congress is talking about doing? So, the bill would uh, you know. Establish the oversight board to then help them restructure their debt. They're trying to get it passed before the July 1st deadline. The problem is, is that Democrats, you know, have a number of issues that they want to see included um, when it comes to pension protection for Puerto Rican retirees, when it comes to um, minimum wage on the island, and a number of other uh, outliers that they want to see tended to. And so... Um, and then conservatives are a little bit upset about the bill because they're worried that it could be a bailout. But, you know, House Speaker Paul Ryan and other Republicans leading the charge on the bill with Democrats are saying, look, this isn't a bailout. This is just a restructuring. You push this can down the road more and then, yeah, we're going to have to have a bailout and that no one's going to like that. All right. Well, uh, we will keep up with this issue as it goes on into July and hopefully they will come up with something. Uh, that will solve this crisis. It's weird. Congress is sort of like only dealing with crises now. Zika, mm-hmm. opiates. I mean, Puerto Rico has been going on for years. It I mean, has. this is this has been yeah. very clear for years that something needs to be done. Yeah, and, and like a lot anything. of things, like a lot of things, it's it's they've waited to the last minute to get involved. And it, it seems to me it was pretty clear that things were going screwy in 2007, and then you added the 2008 financial crisis to it. Mm-hmm. Why no one did anything is beyond me. Yeah, you have you had a full blown crisis for two years in Puerto Rico. I mean, Before and, and the rest they, of us got the taste of it's it. It's just now. I mean, in the last three 
two years has definitely become you know much more obvious on the island with this entire business district shuttering. So. Get there before the vultures start circling, folks. It's a general rule of living your life. Okay, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Zach. We will be right back. And we're back. We're back with our pal, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And our friend, he is uh, in Congress right now, but soon to escape. Congressman Reed Ribble, Republican from Wisconsin. Good to be with you guys. It's really great to talk to you again. We have a lot to go over, and I think we wanted to start, uh, Arthur, with uh, big, big, big doings in the House of Representatives now with uh, addressing the opiate crisis. Yeah, yeah, last week the House passed uh, 18 different pieces of legislation in a package designed to address the heroin and opioid crisis, which is causing many more people to die from this addiction than had in previous years. So what is the House doing? This is a, It seems like a blizzard of activity. Are there certain aspects that are core to the response? Well, yeah, I, I, think, yeah, I think there are things that are core, but I think what's driving this, quite frankly, is, uh, for example, in my own congressional district, I cannot talk to a single sheriff in my congressional district where, where drug use is not the first thing that comes out of their mind. Now, it could be heroin, it could be methamphetamine. We're seeing a move in northeast Wisconsin a little bit away from heroin and, and uh, back toward meth. Um, but but the fact of the matter is we've got a massive drug problem in this country, and at some point it's got to be dealt with. And so uh, over the last six months, the House has passed several pieces of legislation. Last week, I think there were a total of 14 or 15 that we passed. And then at the end of the week, we took all our legislation and put it into one package and sent it over to the Senate. And that was really actually an amendment to some work that the Senate had already done. And uh, I would think this sometime this week um, – we will get the conference report back between the House and Senate and send it over to the president for signature. And so what we did, though, is we streamlined the process whereby states and localities can access grants, and we expanded the grant program by about $150 million. And so this way, uh, we, we've, we've kind of made it easier for these communities to, to access federal dollars to deal with this crisis and we also did some things within the VA to help them out as well. Well, what do the grants do? We have a process right now whereby if you look at what has happened historically in the U.S. with drug abuse, we have moved from a, a posture of treatment in the early 1960s to one of incarceration in the late 1960s and 1970s. And that policy of incarceration has cost huge amounts of money, and, and money was spent to incarcerate rather than treat. What the grant money is intended to do is to provide some access to treatment and to facilitate actually getting treatment to these folks so that we don't have to incarcerate because the cost of incarceration is just enormous. And everybody's heard the, the, the data on how many uh, people are in jails in, in the United States, and it's an astronomical number. And in great part, it's due to this drug epidemic. You know, I you may be familiar with the uh, work of uh, Sam Quinones, who wrote a book called Dreamland that talks about the sort of way 
um, opiate addiction uh, in, in prescription form and heroin addiction in the form of drugs being brought over the border has in pockets, uh, especially in, in the Midwest, the old Rust Belt, uh, has really flared up and is now kind of a vicious cycle that kind of informs the other. Is there any action being taken right now to try to crack down on uh, pill mills that tend to just sort of liberally uh, give out uh, painkillers with uh, with morphine based ingredients to people? Yeah, that that was that, that's also part of it is to to get at kind of the, the the core material that's being used to make heroin, and which is predominantly things like oxycontin and oxycodone and, and, and heavy painkiller, narcotic painkillers, uh, that can then be, be um, refined in, into heroin and, and facilitating communication between pharmaceutical companies, uh, tracking data, getting the, uh, the medical community to only prescribe a small number of pills and then require an actual doctor's visit before you can get a new prescription. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the really pernicious part of it all. This like 15 second meets with a quote unquote doctor and you walk out with a bottle of Oxycontin. You guys, it seems, it seems there's a lot of confidence that we're going to end up with a bill that's signed. You feel, do you feel that way? I, I feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, but you, you just, you just never know. We're in that political silly season right now where neither political party wants to give the other political party any due on anything. And so whether the president will sign this uh, or not, I'm not certain. I think, um, I, I think he's likely to do it because absent this, there is nothing else that's going on above, this, above and beyond the status quo. And we know that the status quo doesn't work. And, and I've had some pushback back home saying, listen, this is not a federal interest, but I would, I would challenge that because this actually is a federal epidemic and particularly the crime that's involved coming through our southern border in moving drugs is, is, is practically at crisis levels. Yeah, it's very sophisticated. Again, it, people should check out Sam Quinona's book, Dreamland, because the sophistication and the f sort of like weird franchising models that drug dealers are using to ship and sell heroin is, is really quite sticky and difficult to extract. Um, you know, you, it, you, it is kind of the silly season, but I, did, I, I'm I am definitely detecting that on this issue, everyone seems to be setting those things aside. I, I think so, too. And I, when, you, when you looked at the debate in the House last week, it never really got contentious. I mean, obviously, some folks would like to see more money or more resources applied to it. Other folks wanted to see more study uh, put to it so that we, we've got really good science going behind this. But, but at the end of the day, when we got to, to uh, the end of the week last week, uh, this thing passed with broad, broad bipartisan yeah. support. Yeah. And so I, I, there, there is no congressional district in the U.S. that has not been impacted by this. None. We have to talk about the silliness now. At, the other opiate. Yeah, the orange one. <laughs> and, uh, and this process we're witnessing in which Donald Trump is possibly becoming like normal to the Republican Party and people are beginning to endorse him or flirting with endorsing him like your Wisconsin colleague, Paul Ryan. You've been in the Never Trump camp since fall. Are you going to stay Never Trump? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm staying here. I, I, I think he's clearly disqualified himself. And so um, I'm right now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a member of Congress without a, without a full home, I guess I would say that. 
So isn't this weird that people are saying that they'll support Trump? Well, there's a little bit of it that that's some, somewhat disconcerting. But the argument that they're making that's the most compelling is that, you know, in the next four years, there's likely to be two or three, uh, maybe even up to four replacements on the Supreme Court. And so who gives you the better chance of having a more or less conservative court? Do you believe that Hillary Clinton will moderate and bring people from the middle in? Uh, or do you believe she's going to attack to the left? We know that from her past uh, language, anyway, from what she says, she's been tacking hard to the left due to her own primary difficulty she has. We don't even know that she's going to be the nominee with the run that Bernie Sanders has been on lately. And then and then uh, Donald Trump is kind of just literally all over the place, but he's told uh, Republican leadership in the Congress that he'll submit a list of names prior um, to the election. And so I think a lot of people are saying, well, that at least that's something. We know for sure that Hillary's going to go to the left on the court, Possibly uh, Donald Trump will go to the right, but we're not sure. But but it's not that he'll go to the right. It's that you you would get actual names in advance. Uh, if I were a nominee, I wouldn't be promising anybody any names. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What's what's also unusual is after uh, his meeting with with Donald Trump, uh, Congressman Ryan said, "Well, you know." It's a process of getting to know a person. It takes time. And I was sitting there thinking, it was like, no, it's not usually that. I feel like we know this guy. Um, I I don't expect you to reveal perhaps secret things that are going on in in Paul Ryan's mind right now about Donald Trump. Maybe you don't even know them. But if you were, say, a a person with familiarity with the situation, which is the sort of like sourcing thing we frequently use, what do you think is going on in in, in Paul Ryan's mind as he tries to navigate these waters? Because they are tricky for him. Yeah, I I, I can say this. I I, I have spoken with Paul, um, and and I have heard him say this publicly, so I'm not giving away any uh, anything away. But he said at the Wisconsin GOP convention over the weekend, I just need to make sure that our standard bearer bears our standards. Huh. And, and he's not fully convinced of that yet. And so I think there's still a process whereby that we have to talk, we have to talk through. For example, uh, Paul Ryan has worked very hard on, on the issue of trade. Uh, the data shows that where we have trade agreements with other countries, our manufacturers have trade surpluses. Where we don't have trade agreements, we have trade deficits. And so we need to we need to get to a place where Donald Trump understands global economics, and so that they can actually he can actually bear the standards of the conservative values and and of the Republican Party that is held so near and dear to all of us. That sounds like a heavy lift, though. Making well, it, it, it is for me. I'm not. I I've already told you guys that I don't think you, you yeah. can get there with him. But but I'm I'm not going to prevent the speaker from uh, making every effort that he can to uh, communicate and try to mentor the presumptive nominee. I think he's unmentorable. And, and that, that, that could be. It, it certainly appears that way to me, but um, I'll, I'll leave the Speaker of the House up to his work. All right. Okay. Cool, cool. I, I mean, I imagine that you're not going to get the kind of stick that maybe Ben Sass took over the weekend from Nebraska, because Wisconsin seemed to be sort of a little bit immune to Trump's charms, at least in the primary. Yeah, well, certainly uh, Wisconsin didn't go to Trump in the primary. Um, I was the, the convention chair over the weekend for the Wisconsin GOP convention. Oh, congratulations. And and uh, the convention came off without a hitch. Um, Send a roofer. There were, yeah, there we go. There were, there were no protests. There were no, uh, there was no uh, flames coming from anybody. 
Um, and so I, I thought it was a very productive uh, uh, weekend, and uh, it was good for Wisconsin Republicans. All right. Well, uh, Congressman Rural, thank you, as always, for joining us in these conversations. We look forward to having you back on, and I think that chances are there will be numerous occasions where perhaps some of your uh, t- insight into things will be of dire necessity to us. Well, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to share with you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank we, you. And we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by author David Dayan, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, as well as Huffington Post reporters Laura Barone-Lopez, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash so that happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.